0: Hello! Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make CineLit as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support CineLit. For our 35mm cine fans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit Success Story... Then you can become an 8mm fan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to another Coffin Lid Raising episode of Sinelit. Today we are continuing our journey taking a look at the history of one of Britain's most beloved film companies, Hammer Films. We've spent time with the count from Transylvania, Dracula, and with Mary Shelley's creation, Frankenstein. But today we are looking to the could-have-beens, the what-ifs of the Hammer universe, as it were. Uh, And I am joined as ever by my
1: co-host, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Adam. And uh, looking forward to this. um, The the end of Hammer's uh, The Devil Rides Out takes us into like an alternative timeline. All the characters get whisked back in time and uh, everything gets sorted out. and It's all a great happy ending. We're we're sort of doing our version of that today. This is going to be like the, the alternative history of what might have been for Hammer. And the fact that these films weren't made, and if they had been made, has all kinds of knock-on effects as well, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to discuss as we go. Fantastic.
0: Well, uh, rejoining us again after successful stints with Dracula and Frankenstein, please welcome Kevin Lyons. How are you going? Hello.
2: I'm all right. Yes, I've survived the Count and I've survived the Baron. Now we can see if we can survive this parallel universe where, you know, Hammer were making all these uh, remarkable films that we never sadly got to see.
0: Yeah, it's a, fa- I mean, it's a fascinating one. I mean, particularly in recent years, there's been a lot of coverage of these unmade Hammer films, particularly with, like, Mark Gattis's, uh radio production of The Unquenchable Thirst of Insatiable Thirst. Unquenchable. unquenchable. It's, it's both. It's both. It was, it
2: was, it was, both. it was, yeah, developed under both titles. Yeah. Ah, okay. Well, the unquen- I prefer
0: Unquenchable. So The yeah. Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula was on the radio... Five years ago, six years ago, something like that. So we've had one, and we've also had a few, quite a few live stage readings of different scripts. I think Zeppelins versus Pterodactyls was done at Mayhem Film Festival. A yes, few al-
1: years our pals, our Stephen Scheele and Chris Cook have been putting those on. In fact, they they even did before Mark Gatiss with uh, with Kevin's uh, mate Jonathan Rigby. They did. Um, uh, the dracula one as well unquenchable thirst so uh so nottingham broadway uh, is is really a sort of center for for bringing these unmade hammer films out of mothballs balls and at least presenting them on on a stage or in sort of audio version
0: yes yeah, so, i mean so, so the awareness is quite high. one of my first questions because I am by no means an expert on any of this. And previously with the episodes, I could watch the episodes, I could I watch the films and I could chip in my own thoughts and feelings. I kind of, in this one, I'm just going to listen to you guys mainly <laughs> and
1: maybe ask a few questions. But So I'm much more of a traditional host in that respect. Yeah, but but me- the, good, the good thing about this, though, Adam, is that usually we come on here and it's all facts, 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 and we've <laughs> all had to do our research and stuff. Here, I think we can do a lot of speculation.
2: Mm, yes. Yeah. So
1: you can yeah, join in. That'd that would be fun. One of my first, the first questions that really sprung to my mind when I was
0: thinking about this was just nowadays when you're watching like you know the movies, films, Marvel films, that kind of stuff. Everyone's really overly aware of all the films that are in production, in pre-production, or in post-production that are coming out next year that have been delayed. Fans know about all these films, no matter at very early stages of development. How much of these films were in the public consciousness rather than the industry consciousness?
2: Very little, I would say, to be honest. Um, you know, unless you were reading Variety or Kiddie Weekly or Today's Cinema, you know, the trade journals, mm. they were definitely covered there. I mean, Hammer used to take out adverts in there, usually around January announcing this big slate of films that were going to be coming out, only about a third of which ever did, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I don't think the general public were generally that aware of what was going on. Fans maybe slightly more, maybe some of the fanzines mentioned it. I think um, the Christopher Lee Fan Club, I think possibly they would have known about some of this stuff and passed the word around. But it's not like it was today. These films were very much you know, known among the, you know, the Wardour Street crowd. They all knew what was going on. And I suspect half of them knew that half these films would never get made. They all knew it was a little bit of ballyhoo on, on Hammer's Pass. But no, the, the fans and particularly the general public would have had no idea that these films were even considered.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's what, it is one of those things where nowadays we know, we know, oh my God, we would love to have seen Darren Aronofsky's Batman movie. Or you know, Why didn't that never go? But these are just the, the fans didn't feel like they'd missed out because they never knew.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, no one knew about it. I mean, we know about them now because, you know, Hammer is one of the most researched film production units ever. I mean, you know, there's very little we don't know about Hammer nowadays. There's so many books and magazines, we've got archives of their stuff. So people have poured over every single scrap of paper that survived. So we know this stuff. But yeah, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we were blissfully unaware a that a lot of this stuff ever actually happened. I say we, I wasn't, I'm not that old, I wasn't around in the 50s, but the 60s and 70s, we knew nothing about this stuff.
0: Yeah. So then, apart from
2: Vampirella, apparently, that was the one that had a bit more publicity. Vampirella had a bit more because they really tried to pre-sell that one. Michael Carreras, who was running Hammer at the time, was really keen on Vampirella, and he, you know he, he he got Barbara Lee, the actress, to dress up in the iconic costume, took her over to America, took her to the famous monsters of Filmland convention so you know there were, there were lots of photographs of her, and that was that one was well known, and that one may have been the only one where fans were aware of it enough to be disappointed that it didn't get made, but some of these titles they were they were sitting on a, on a shelf somewhere in an archive, a dusty script until someone came along and said, "Well, oh, this sounds good you know we should have." Should at least hear a version of this, even if it's not the film. I
1: think a big, a big revelation was. Um, uh, I think it was. was it 1973 when uh, Lorimer Publishing put out the yes. uh, the, the, the book uh, about Hammer, the House of Horror. In typical Lorimer fashion, it had very skimpy sort of text, yeah. didn't really say yeah. a lot, but was a great picture book. And it had this hammer glamour gallery in it with all of the hammer starlets in. But then this other fascinating gallery that when 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 you pick this book up, when when we saw it, when we were sort of 11, 12 years old or whatever... What are all these amazing colour posters in the back for films we've never yes. heard of? You know, even even then, at, at sort of age twelve, thirteen, you know, we we we'd started to see the Hammer films on TV in the seventies, and we sort of knew what 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 which ones had been released. And suddenly, there's there's about half a dozen posters in the back of this Morimer book for films that we'd never heard of. And and as it then turned out, as, as we looked into it more. A lot of the films that we're going to be talking about today, films where all there was was an amazing poster design. Yes. And then nothing had
2: happened. So and I guess what, uh, what happened was when the book was published, they'd been announced and the posters yeah, yeah, were out there. So yeah. the publishers sort of you know, hedged their bets a little bit and thought, oh, let's put these in. So in the future, we'll look like we were really on the ball and we were really <laughs> ahead of the curve here. And of course, they never got made, just ended up looking like, oh... Yeah. What's all this about? Then? <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah, these these sort of 70s uh, productions throughout the 70s will will come on to as we go. Yeah. But I I guess we're going to go through in, in vaguely chronological order, although even that's quite difficult. Obviously.
2: It is because, uh, yeah, because projects sort of came and went and then came back again. So it's kind of difficult to sort of put them in their right right place without sort of getting into a bit of a mess. But we'll do our best. We'll see what we can do. OK, well, let's, well
0: let's, get, let's head back to the 1950s. I'm assuming we're, we're just going to cover the genre ones in yeah, this podcast. I don't think anyone so wants many. to hear about the fourth On the Buzzies movie that never got made. Yeah,
2: there are so many. Even, even uh, you know, I mean, it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that I found out that Hammer had announced a, a version of Cabinet of Dr Caligari at one point. Wow. So, you know, there are so many films that they announced. They were a very ambitious company. They were small but they thought big, and you know they they were constantly announcing stuff that, you know, as we'll see, in at least one of those that we're going to talk about here, one that they had probably never had any chance of making. Bridge just sounded good in the adverts. We'll tell people we're going to do this, and so they were announcing films on a yearly basis, you know, one after the other, and we Was could this- do a we could do four or five of these podcasts just on the genre of films, to be honest.
0: With 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 regards to the announcing, was that all the way through the history of the company or did it change in the sixties when competition and all that kind of stuff really It happened?
2: was mostly yeah. in the sixties. Um of the ones I've seen, the adverts, you know, I've, I've been through all the old Kidney weeklies and, you know, all the trade magazines from the 60s. I, I, love it. I, I, I love nothing more than sitting in the British Library for a whole day and a lovely hot summer's day sort of pouring over copies of, of, of kiddie weekly that no one's looked at since 1962. But, you know, it's, it's great. And you do find a lot, they, they do increase. And then into the early 70s when Michael Carreras took over, he really got into the, the whole publicity machine thing. And you find loads more titles then turn up. Yeah
1: yeah now now hammer um hammer as is, is well known to fans but maybe not so much to the general public that um a lot of their output it was was based on in the in the 70s they they were one of the companies that were doing a lot of the sort of sitcom uh, adaptations bringing those to the big screen but that was always a tradition with Hammer where even right from the start they'd taken old radio shows and yes. made them into movies and I know Kevin on your research for this you found out that um, um, we, we we know that Hammer released three um, Dick Barton movies right. in the immediate post-war period yep. but um, what you found out for us is, is that there was a, um, a prospective fourth one that, that never was. made it so I, quite... I think we'll, we'll kick off with that.
2: Indeed, it's quite a tragic story really. And they are kind of genre because when you watch them, they've got science fiction elements in them. So they're yeah, kind of, you death, know, they're death, death rays and biological yeah. weapons and all the rest of it. So uh, so yeah there was going to be a fourth film, Dick Barton in Africa. And I suspect that, you know, Africa would have been played by Black Park or, you know, some Hampstead, he's a bit like in Curse of Simba or Curse of the Voodoo or whatever it's called. And, you know, they 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 wouldn't have had the money to go all the way to Africa, certainly not in 1948. But they, they planned this. And this is what I mean about them having ambition. You know, we're going to take this detective all the way to to Africa, even though we're going to shoot it somewhere in the home counties and hope we get away with it. But um, all three of the films had starred the really popular young actor called um, Don Stannard, who played the the part in three films, um, Dick Barton Special Agents, Dick Barton at Bay, and Dick Barton Strikes Back. They didn't go very far for these titles. I mean, you know, these were proper sort of... You know, they were very redolent of the of the, um, the old serials, the old Republic serials, and yeah, the, yeah. the action in the films felt that way as and well. And you,
1: you know? as you're saying, those titles, we can envisage them sort of yeah. uh, on on the spine on the of a, a sort of boy's own book or something.
2: Exactly, you know? that's exa- and that's what they were looking you all, for. You they can to looking...
1: like see the pictures on the covers, you, you know, yeah. They
2: yeah. that pulp sensibility. And yeah. tragically, it was after the making of the third one, Don Stanard had been to the uh, the rap party and was heading home when he was involved in a car crash and tragically died very young in the crash. And that put paid to Dick Barton in Africa, which as far as I can tell is the earliest known unmade hammer film. We don't really know of anything prior to that.
0: Was that was that scripted? Were they going to go or had they just
2: announced it? They'd announced it. They hadn't got as far a script yet. They'd li- they'd literally just finished the previous one, but you know the, the success of the three films meant that you know, a fourth one was inevitable. Sure. So
1: I, I guess in in the case of these things as well, that even if the script wasn't written, it would have been in in like a fortnight.
2: <laughs> oh something. yeah, they'd, yeah. would they'd have got somebody. Somebody would have been writing it the Rat parser. You know, they'd yeah, been bouncing yeah. ideas around for it at the very least. So yeah, uh, check,
1: checking checking the archives for sort of stock footage of elephants it, and things.
2: It, yeah, exactly yeah yeah which which stock which library we're going to use for the giraffes you know that sort of thing it, so. it
0: was was in africa the 90s 50s sort of like version of in space for the fourth film you know, <laughs> I know you
2: so, yeah <laughs> yeah Inevitably, yeah. all the film season, series go into yeah. space yeah. at some yeah. point, don't they? Yeah, exactly. But
1: well, we we had in the seventies, we had Shaft in Africa, so, Africa, so Africa, you know, yeah. Hammer 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 were there thirty years before. So I,
2: uh, I think yeah. to be fair, Dick Barton would have been a very different film to Shaft in Africa oh, yeah. on yeah. so yeah. many levels. <laughs> yeah,
1: let's let's not go there.
2: Exactly. So.
1: But, okay. <laughs> what, what, what I wanted to mention next before, um, I I, I want to throw in a movie that was made, which which might sound Crazy, but um, Hammer, Hammer made X the unknown, and they they'd um, uh, uh, as as we've said, they were specialising in bringing TV shows and radio shows to the to the big screen, and they'd had the the smash hit with the Quatermass Experiment, the film that changed everything. And Hammer thought this this Professor Quatermass is a great character. You know, we loved him on TV. We've now made a movie about him. Let's let's do a sequel. And uh, Nigel Neal, the creator of uh, Professor Quatermass. A a bit of a curmudgeon when it came to things like this, or just defending his own corner, really, said, oh, no, 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 you're you're, you're not doing that. So so we ended up with Dean Jagger um, playing Dr. Adam Royston, a a sort of thinly disguised Bernard Quatermass in... uh, Tackling this sort of radioactive sludge in uh, in, in Scotland with uh, Fraser Hind and uh, Anthony Newley in tow, but what what might have been before we get onto the sort of unmade Hammer? What what might have been yes. uh, had Hammer been able to use uh, Professor course, Q yeah, yeah. in in this one?
2: And indeed, there, there there was another what might have been around that time because at that point this. this Guy that no one had ever heard of before, called Milton Sabotsky, rocks up with a script for a Frankenstein, for Frankenstein film. Frankenstein, yes. Yes. So you know, and th- that was one that was never made. But Hammer looked at that and thought, well, you know, if he thinks he's in the public domain, it must be. So we'll do our own version of it. So you know, there, there were the yeah. there El- were these elbowing
1: points. elbowing Sabotsky aside, and he yeah. Then got, old Milton, he, yeah. He, he then he then did get his own back by becoming Hammer's major rival over Indeed. the next fifteen years at uh, Amicus Pictures.
2: But that's the thing you were saying about the sort of going off into in parallel universes. What what would have happened if they'd done a whole series of Quatermass films that weren't based on directly on Nigel Neal's? I yeah, mean, you know, that yeah, that would have yeah. had knock-on effects. Would that would Nigel Neal have then written Quatermass and the Pierce, which I don't think was had actually been on TV at that point? No, so, no. you know, that that yeah. that might never have happened. Now
1: I'm 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 going to tie this into the the first big film that we're going to talk about, which was a script called Night Creatures, and Hammer did make a film called Night Creatures later on, aka uh, Captain Clegg. But this was nothing to do with it. This was. Um, an adaptation of, written by the author himself, of Richard Matheson's classic novel *I Am Legend*, and I believe he wrote it in 1957. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kev. That's
2: right. Yes, yeah, so he was flown over and stuck in a hotel room and told to write so a script. He,
1: a- he actually wrote. He was brought <laughs> over to England to write yes. it. Blimey. That's right. And uh, and I've, I've I've seen Val Guest's name attached to this as well as a potential yeah. director. I'm, before we get on to talking about that project and what happened to it, and again, that 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 was another that was filmed eventually, but that's a whole other story. But uh, it wasn't filmed by Hammer. I'm I'm going to suggest that had Val Guest directed this, I I wonder if the thought might have come up that, and and had they got away with putting uh, Bernard Quatermass into X the Unknown, might he have become the last man on Earth and replaced Robert Neville?
2: I like that. Oh, that would have been good, wouldn't it? I'd never thought of that, but yes, that makes that makes a certain degree of sense. I like it. Yeah,
1: I, yeah. I, I can just see that with Val Guest being attached to it. That's the thing, and, uh, yeah. and, and w- I'm wondering who, which actor might play Robert Neville. Well, if if instead of that you have Professor Quatermass as the last man on Earth, sure. you, your casting's been done for you because you just bring in Brian Donlevy.
2: Of course, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now that makes perfect yeah. sense. Now you've you mentioned it. Yeah. yeah. So
1: there's there's just a little a little sort of uh, fan theory for you, but. To, I guess this was being muted around the same
0: time as they were about to do Frankenstein and Dracula. Well, Curse
1: of Frankenstein would have been in production at this yeah. point, right, and, okay. and Dracula was was um, mm. sort of on the back burner. So, yeah, it would have probably... That, that's the other interesting thing, Adam. If, if night creatures had been made, it would have probably come out fairly simultaneously mm. with the, the release of Dracula and that's that's very interesting because the success or failure of one or other of those movies might have changed the entire history of Hammer mm. and might might well have meant that we have no Christopher Lee even yeah, exactly exactly you know it is these sliding doors things are, it is, are, isn't it? are yeah. fascinating, aren't they yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, Kevin, tell us a bit more about the history of the Night Creatures
2: then. Well, like I say, they they brought Matheson over. He had a two-month-long working holiday in Britain. He was stuck in a hotel room bashing out this script, which um, he duly delivered. And um, back then there was a practice of studios, like uh, companies rather like um, Hammer would send the scripts to the BBFC, what was then the British Board of Film Censorship, For approval, because what they didn't want to do was spend valuable money on making a a film that the censors were then going to say, absolutely no way, you're not releasing this. So they send the scripts off down to to Toho Square. Someone would have a read of it and say, yeah, we like this bit. Take this bit out. You know, you can't get away with that. Um, So they sent off the script for Night Creatures and the BBFC promptly corporately fainted they did not like the look of this one little bit it's um i mean having read the book many many times i'm not actually sure what he was putting in the book that was so offensive it's like the, the yeah. book is hardly a gore fest is it but i know um, i've
1: i've heard i've heard theories from and 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 the, the script does exist i believe it does, I, yeah. I think people have read it have said there seem to be an awful lot of stakings in it but, yes. but then again there were there were in the dracula movie. <laughs> exactly. you know? um and there's also a scene where where neville um captures and tortures of vampire as well sure. so but again I, I suppose there were equivalents to that in um, in some of the early oh, hammer, dracula and, and hammer vampire movies so but maybe this was just too early maybe this was just three or four months maybe maybe it, was, and, maybe it was
0: maybe it was a contemporary setting as well very likely. Might yeah. have, might have um,
2: affected the BBSC. Whatever it was, it wasn't just the BBSC, the MPAA in America okay. didn't like the look yeah, of they, it sent to them. Too. Yeah, yeah. The overemphasis on gruesomeness. They didn't like it so they do love that because John John
1: Tolson's book has, has the word gruesomeness yeah, in the right. of, All all about the universal movies from from sort of 20, 25 years earlier. So yeah, gruesomeness was
2: a big thing with the uh yeah.
1: the, the, the the censors and the, the, yes. the moral guardians, yeah,
2: yeah. But uh, it pretty much killed the project because you know if, if if, if you couldn't get it released in Britain, you might have had a chance to recoup your money in America. But if the Americans were saying, oh, no, this is way too much for us, then, you know, that's pretty much the end of your project. So Hammer had to reluctantly give up on it. But it had a kind of an interesting afterlife, like all good vampires. It had an interesting afterlife. They they, they were partnered at the time, Hammer, with Robert Lippert, who, you know, worked with various companies in America. But he was, you know, helping channel financing into to Hammer at the time. And they were stuck with this script, didn't know what to do with it. So Lippert said, Well, sell it to me. I'll I'll take it off your hands. And you know, they were quite glad to get rid of, rid of it. And they they got, um, I think it was um the abominable snowman was actually up next for them, and then they got Dracula who was on the back burner as well. So they got plenty to be getting on with the hammer. They didn't really, I don't think they lost much sleep over the loss of this film. But Lippert um took the project off to Italy and managed to sell it to um Produzioni le regina my apologies to any italians listening i I can barely i'm from the midlands i can barely speak english i I don't i don't do italian (laughs) but he managed to sell it to them baldo regona came on board as a director and it was made as the last man on earth in 1964
1: with a bit of surprise yeah yeah. And, and uh a, a film that Richard Madison then took his own name off uh,
2: That's right, he, yeah. he he,
1: he wasn 't keen with it but it's it's it's, it's gone a something of a cult reputation in I recent like years because it. Like it was, it, it, was it, it was really really hard to see for decades it and then then sort of reemerged on sixteen <laughs> yeah. millimeter film societies in the nineties and has since become available on dvd and blu-ray yeah. and a lot more people have got to see it and because it's a film that in its Italian version Really seems to predate George Romero's *Night of the Living Dead*. I, mean, right. I think it's taken on this huge cult status
2: now yeah.
1: as the film that influenced George Romero. And, well, and it re- th- it re-
2: film number f- twenty-seven of the film of the series yeah. of films that influenced *Night of the Living Dead*. <laughs> as you said, like any film made before nineteen sixty-eight that had people vaguely shuffling about, was going yeah. to be, you know. I must
0: admit included. that's how I saw it. I saw the DVD, and it was like, see the film that was the influence.
1: Yeah, I, I think to be fair, to be fair on this one, there, there are literally C see- that you there would take are, out yeah. of it and cut yeah. into Romero. As you oh know. yes, They're, definitely. It's yeah. so close at times. I think but it's Vin- pretty clear. price that. is marvelous too. So uh,
2: I don't. It's a good film, you know. And if this was close yeah. to the script that um, Matheson wrote for Hammer, then again, that's that's the great what if. What if they'd made that script with you know, even with Christopher Lee in the lead role. Anybody, yeah. I mean, yeah. Peter Cushing would have been a, a great choice for, for yeah, Neville.
1: Fantastic Neville
0: yeah. yeah. Neville. I, do, I
1: do feel like the words
0: Chris, Peter Cushing would have been a great for this role is going to be a recurring sentence <laughs> <laughs>
2: throughout this discussion today. So Philip and Peter Cushing would have been great for any role. I don't care what it was; they would have been, you know. They'd have been yeah.
1: On the buzzes, <laughs> there's a couple of fil- there's a couple of films that we'll talk about later on where Peter Cushing was actually mooted for a part. Yes, so, that's uh, right. You know, so I'm yeah. sure we will be saying that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, my big thing with versions of I Am Legend, I love the novel. It's mm. one of my all time favourites. Yeah. And um, Courtman, the next door neighbour to Neville, is described in the book as looking, the spitting image of Oliver Hardy and, yeah, um, right. and he's never cast as an Oliver Hardy lookalike in subsequent versions the, the Will Smith one recently or um, or the, Omeg- in, the, Omega in Man. the Omega Man or indeed in, in yeah. Last Man on Earth and I, I'm I'm trying to think: would, would Hammer have cast somebody like George Woodbridge in the part? You know. Oh, perfect! Yes, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, pro- probably not, given that nobody else does. Uh, everyone seems to ignore that bit about Oliver Hardy.
2: I think what works is a nice little throwaway joke on the page. If you've actually got to stay with that character, then for the next, you know, eighty minutes or so. The joke might wear a bit thin, so I, I, I think guess you know, so, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. It, it, Michael
0: Ripper have ended up playing it anyway, so it oh, Michael it. Ripper. It's, it's a redundant yeah. conversation, isn't it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, I am legend, or Last Man on Earth, or Night Creatures, or whatever you want to call it. I, th- I think it's got this fascinating, um, sort of sliding doors effect, where, I, yes. as, as we say, you know maybe maybe Val Guest would have become the dominant director at Hammer doing, doing yeah. the sort of gothics and horror subjects rather than Terence Fisher maybe we'd have had no Christopher Lee if Dracula
2: hadn't been a success and, and Night Creatures had and um, maybe because it's got a kind of a science fiction edge to it as well and Quatermass have been a hit and X the Unknown or all the rest of it maybe they'd have gone on and started a the, boom re- reactivated the 50s boom in science fiction yeah films the, go- the had, gothics you know, the gothics
1: might yeah. not have happened yeah may not and, happen. and, and also of course if Richard Mattison had had, had had a hit with Hammer, they might have kept him on rather yep. than Jimmy Sangster as sort that's of chief right. writer, yeah. and that may have also meant that the Roger Corman Edgar Allan Poe
2: films didn't
1: happen. Exactly. So, so yeah. you know, there's 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 all sorts going on here.
2: We're in a very weird parallel universe here. <laughs> <laughs> it's very odd. It seems like <laughs> Daryl
1: killing
0: movies. things of that. That's <laughs> what this conversation. Is. <laughs> So one of the names on this list that was that we was talking about were films was uh, King Kong, Now we spoke about King Kong before. Hammer, not me. Even though they did some of the dinosaur films, they're not really known as a giant monster studio or anything like that. It didn't seem to be their forte.
1: It's Although so, it is it is interesting how how many of these unmade projects are, are monster films yes. and we'll, we'll we'll
2: come on come to that later to but
1: yeah we'll we'll talk about Kong specifically now though and then we can we can talk about the others as we go
2: It does make a sort of sense though if you think about it because they had have done you know all the 30s classic horror movies yeah. they they've done Dracula They'd done um, Frankenstein. They'd done A Werewolf. They'd done The Hound of the Baskervilles. And The
1: and, Mummy. And The Mummy. Yes, and the mummy yeah. So it's Lord sort of f- next think, on the list. Yeah, yeah,
2: um, yeah. there was talk at one point of them maybe doing The Invisible Man, but, you know, that didn't get very far. So they, they King they Kong... Did did Kong fa- they did Phantom of the Opera by, of in the, the early opera. 60s. So
1: So, yeah, King Kong was it just kind of the, the, the next one on the conveyor belt,
2: really. The, yeah, the yeah, problem yeah. for the conveyor belt was RKO, who <laughs> made King Kong. They were quite happy. RKO. I I don't quite understand this, but they were quite happy to let people make sequels to King Kong, which is why we got King Kong versus Godzilla and King Kong Escapes in Japan. But they were absolutely adamant: you are not doing a remake of King Kong. And Hammer wanted to do it first at various points in the 1960s, and they were just told absolutely not. And I I, I suspect this was all down to the fact that they'd done things like One Million Years BC, so Ray Harryhausen was possibly on board and they did their other some you know dinosaur films as time went along so they got Jim Danforth possibly David Allen was was on board apparently at one point to do these things but RKO okay, oh, was just not going to play ball you you know if you want to do a sequel to King Kong you can do it but why would Hamill want to do a sequel to a film that they hadn't actually made yet so sure. they, they kept plugging away the last time I saw it mentioned is in January 1971 in one of the trade papers. So they were very close to the point where RKO capitulated and said to Dino de Laurentiis that you can... I was nearly going to call him Dino de horrendous after that, <laughs> that, that that Kenny Everett sketch, which is how I always think of poor old Dino de Laurentiis. But at, at some point they, they said to him, yes, you can remake it. So Hammer just missed out on that one. They were a little yeah. bit too early, a little bit too ahead of the game.
1: Now let's let's speculate a bit on this then, because um, we're we, we're saying we we would have had stop motion effects in the Hammer version, mm. either from Harryhausen or Dave Allen or or Danforth, Jim Danforth, yeah. uh, one one of one of the yeah, any any of those sixties early seventies yeah, yeah. greats. Where would Hammer have set this movie? Would it have been a straight remake and set in New York, or might they have brought it to
2: London? Yeah, I mean, in the 1960s in particular, what would have been the biggest building in London? It would have been, you know, I know it's not Big Ben, but it would have been the tower that Big Ben is in, which doesn't quite have the same sort of... You know, like climbing up the Empire State Building, it doesn't no have quite Empire the same feel. It? No, it's it's not. So I don't know. I mean, where would they have set it? I, I um, think. And then, we, and then, of course, Queen Kong climbed up then, that in, infamously in
1: 1976. <laughs> so
2: uh, yes, with the emphasis very much on infamously. So yeah so,
1: so we've seen we've seen how impressive it
2: looks. Exactly, and I think <laughs> they would have known that. So I think they. I wonder if maybe they would have had it so that you know, so sort of Kong is captured, brought to London put on display in London so we can see it in London, but then, you know, sort of shipped off to America for the yeah. climax, basically. Of, of
1: course, what, what we did have in the meantime was uh, in, in 1961, we had Herman Cohen's Talking of yes. Infamous, Herman Cohen's <laughs> conger.
2: Indeed, and Gorgo as well, of course. Yes, which, you know, Gorgo. Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. So again, both of those were sort of demolishing London, London landmarks, landmarks including yeah. including Big Ben. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, t- Tower Bridge, it could have climbed Tower Bridge, but then again, you know, so Cole would have probably just stepped over that to be perfectly <laughs> honest. You know. it, it is a strange project in that sense. It's, it's a very logical project in the sense that you know they they remade so many of the '30s classics, but to make a giant monster movie. In Britain, where are you going to put it? Maybe when would have been Auburn stop motion. They just do models for the sets. Yeah, possibly. You know, they it's may, they really may have sort of set it in the near future or something where, you know, sort of they got a sparkling metropolis like London or something like that. Yeah. Well, they, they,
1: they could have anticipated things like the Gherkin, you know. Yes, exactly. they, they could have yes.
2: redesigned the
1: London skyline before Boris Johnson did. Impaled well, on doing. the Shard.
2: <laughs> Weirdly, from from where I sit to doing this, if I look out the window, I can see all that stuff out there. And yes, you can imagine Kong scaling some of that now, but in the nineteen sixties, even in the seventies. You'd have to you know, make it up, yeah. You'd have had to make it up, exactly. So it is, it's, it's a strange one. Where indeed would they have set it? Would it have been in America or would it have been in Britain? But Who knows? But they were they were quite persistent with it. They kept plugging away at it throughout the sixties and into the early seventies, and then they just they gave up just as RKO were about to give in. So um, really bad timing for Hammer.
1: Now we've got uh, we've got Dennis Wheatley up next, and Hammer did film a couple of Wheatley novels. Um, nice. Devil Rides Out, which is my favourite Hammer film, and in fact my yep. my favourite British film of, of all. I, I love it. Um, they later did uh, To the Devil a Daughter, but um, there was talk of both the Haunting of Toby Jook and yep. the Satanist. Um, That's right. Uh, Hammer held the rights to both of those at various times, and uh, and they they never made it to screen.
2: They, they had the rights to, to several of his books. There was, they were going to do, um, or they, they had plans to do things like Strange Conflicts and Gateway to Hell at various points in the 60s yeah. and 70s. And of course,
1: the, the, one, the one other they did film was uh, The Lost Continent. The Lost Continent, yeah.
2: exactly, yeah. yeah. They even, actually, they, they, this is a very strange project. They even considered a television series, which they were planning to call Dennis Wheatley's The Devil and All His Works in the 1970s. So that would have been presumably adaptations, you know, truncated adaptations of his many novels um, before they ran out, and then they started making up their own ones. Those films did quite well for Hammer, particularly The Devil Rides Out. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, much as, much as I really liked The Devil or Daughter, I think it's a much undervalued film, I think it proved to them that by the mid-70s, Dennis Wheatley was no longer the publishing phenomenon that he had been in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, younger people in particular, they just weren't buying into that. You know, there was this is slightly stuffy, sort of middle-class guy from the previous generation writing about people that they didn't really relate to or understand, and while that was fine in the 60s, you could get away with that. I think by the time the 70s came around people yeah. just, you know, Wheatley... I, I, yeah.
1: I, I think there was there was an attempt to repackage Wheatley's yeah. novels in the 70s with, with incredible sort of salacious covers with yeah. na- naked yeah. women draped all over altars and things, yeah. and uh, goat heads and candles sure. and stuff. And uh, I, I guess that was the point where people were obviously going into WH Smiths and buying these things, taking them home, reading them alongside The Exorcist and Whatever yes.
2: other
1: new yeah. novels were out, yeah, and I maybe at that point thinking, what what is this? What
2: you know, is this? Yeah, this yeah. is so stodgy compared yeah. to yeah. The Exorcist, you and, know. So, and, yeah. and so
1: maybe that was the start of Wheatley's popularity beginning to, to sort of wane. Yeah, exactly. just at the point where Hammer made *To the Devil a Daughter*, of which caused yeah. them, which was really their great last gasp in in terms of horror.
2: That's right, it was, yeah. And again, it was just this bad timing for Hammer. They, they sort of had a bit of a history for this, of just being in the wrong time, at the, the wrong place at the wrong time. If they'd managed to go ahead with these, you know, filming The Satanist, which I, changed hands several times, The Satanist, didn't it? and ended up yeah. with lots of different people eventually. But if they'd gone ahead with that the uh, Haunting of Toby Jug in the 60s, straight after To the Devil of Daughter, they might actually have hit the mother load there. But for various reasons, they just didn't do it. I mean, at, at one point, uh, the Haunting of Toby Jug, they'd actually got um, Richard Matheson writing a script, and um, Terence Fisher was going to direct with Christopher Lee returning. Whether he was going to return as the Duke de Richelieu, I don't know, but, you know, maybe they were going to force him into that novel. He certainly would have been considered for Strange Conflicts and Gateway to Hell, which feature de Richelieu. Yeah. Um, had they done it at that time, then I think, yeah, that would have been a fantastic new scene for them, wouldn't it, from the late 60s into the 70s.
1: And and a, a, a brand new series, which which yeah. again might might have elbowed out the need for a, a Karnstein series, which was the one they did go with. That's so right. yeah. so we, yeah. we may have had no lesbian vampires had they oh, gone down the well, Dennis well. Wheatley. Well, we can't have so, that. hang on a minute. I don't want to live <laughs> no, in a world no. where there's no lesbian <laughs> yeah. vampires.
2: Come on, no, come on. You can't can't even contemplate that as an yeah. idea, can you? That's that's no good. I, I,
1: I guess I guess they they'd have they'd have put a fair bit of nudity into the Wheatley adaptation.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. All the, all, the, all those you know. Sacri- Sacrificial virgins on the altars, you know, that would have been right up their street, wouldn't it? And, so, and,
1: that, and then what what happened instead is our, our, old, our old pal, the late, great Norman J. Warren came along and, yes. and, and effectively did that with uh, with Says and the Slaves. And Slaves, So, uh, right, which, yes. I, which I think has really got the feel of what, what the Hammer Wheatley films might have been. You
2: know? I think you're right, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think you're And maybe, you know, in this alternate universe, they'd have got Norman in to do one of the, Possibly, the adaptations. Because yeah,
1: you know. he, he, he was talking to um, Amicus, I believe, That's at, right, the, yes. at, the, yeah. at the time. So so he, he wasn't off the radar of, uh, of these companies. So,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Cool. But he wasn't to be. The next one up on the list is
0: probably my favourite title, uh, is When the Earth Cracks Open. That's a
2: and great, a great again, title. We, we've
1: got we've got a poster for this as well. Um,
2: yeah, a fantastic Tom Chantrell poster. If, yeah. In fact, they were, this was announced alongside my, my personal favourite title, Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls. They were both anna- yeah, announced yeah. at exactly the same time.
1: Which, which we've also got a poster for, we've yeah. also got and, a fantastic and which poster Zeppelin for. versus Pterodactyls was actually staged by, uh, well, Stephen Shield, who, who's our pal from... Uh, Broadway, Nottingham Broadway, runs Mm. the Mayhem Film Festival with Chris Cook. Stephen was tasked with taking all of the available materials for Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls fashioning that into a new script in the style of um, Jonathan's presentation of Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula and delivering that on on stage at Broadway. And I I didn't, uh, I wasn't able to attend myself, but I heard from people who did, who said the the show was excellent and that Stephen had had sort of devised a really good, full, robust, Script from some fairly skimpy materials. Sure. My my, fa- my favorite other comment on uh, Zeppelin versus Tentacles came from uh, Des Skin, the editor oh, of yes. the nineteen seventies uh, House of Hammer magazine. I I interviewed Des some years ago, and uh, during the interview, he was he was talking about the 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 way in which Hammer sort of promoted these unmade films. And they'd always be pitching them to, to him or other magazine publishers to sort of help, oh, can you help us promote this new title? And he says, when, he, when, when they approached him and said, oh, we, we've got this new film in the pipeline, Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls, Des was astonished. He he, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. And he, 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 and he, he, said, he said to me on stage, he said, um, well, Zeppelin versus Pterodactyls, Opening titles, film begins, balloon, pop. What do you do with the other 89 minutes and 30 seconds? <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, they had sharp beaks, apparently, those pterodactyls, <laughs> didn't they? So, yeah, that would have been, um, yeah, but what a title. I mean, come on, you can't, you can't really say. If you'd seen, if you'd been walking down the high street, some point in 1970, 71, whenever this film was going to come out, And you went past your local cinema and there was that poster and there was a double bill of when the earth cracks open and Zeppelin versus pterodactyls. How fast would you have parted with your money to go oh, and see that?
1: Yeah, have, have, take take my cash now. You know? But uh, but uh, Raquel Welsh, of course, had, had been involved with Hammer in um, in uh, One Million Years BC. Uh, again, a lot of fans don't know this, but she she was also sort of involved in the background on uh, yes. Michael Reeves' The Sorcerers right. as as a as sort of um, a sort of silent producer, you know. Yeah. So uh, she was into a sort of British horror and British fantasy around this time, and um, there was talk of her making a film for Hammer called Mistress of the Seas, which was going to be a sort of pirate pirate adventure. Now, when the Earth cracked open, has got this amazing poster, a very sort of pulchritudinous poster with this sort of skimply clad young lady in this bizarre—I I don't even know how you describe the outfit. It's—it's uh, it's not exactly a bikini or a scuba diving suit. It's just these sort of black straps <laughs> that are positioned seemingly in the wrong place. You know, with a
2: fishbowl on her head, if I remember.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. indeed it is. It is, and you, and you see that poster and you think, well, this this is either written for Raquel Welch or possibly yes. one of the Hammer starlets like Valerie Leon or yeah, Caroline yeah. Monroe. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but do, do we know much about what when the Earth cracked open was going to be? Because there, there's, there's been talk that either it was going to be a sort of futuristic thing or maybe a dinosaur thing or maybe a bit of both. So,
2: I think it's one of those that we don't know a huge amount about it. So people have just speculated based on that poster. And that poster seems to promise a lot more than I think any single Hammer film could ever have actually delivered at that time. It does look. I, I've always assumed it was going to be some sort of science fiction film.
1: Yeah, it looks like, like that from from, from the, the poster. Ball. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Um, you know whether it was going to be something along the lines of cracking the earth. Remember that film from the 60s? Whether it was going to be something along those lines?
1: Maybe even a sort of Borosian thing, like we got the later film at the Earth's core.
2: That's right. Maybe maybe it was going to be something like that. Maybe
1: the the Earth splits open and monsters from from another time and another era emerge or something like that. Or a a parallel universe.
2: Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, that would be my feeling about it that, it, that the Earth literally cracks open and loads of monsters and yeah. these sort of, you know, subterranean...
1: And, and, on, and only Raquel Welsh in a fishbowl Raquel can save us, yeah. Absolutely,
2: yeah. yeah. Now, oh, come on, who wouldn't pay to see that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Absolutely perfect. We do know that it was, it was supposed to be part of a co-production deal with AIP. Right. They'd, had, right. they'd, they'd bankrolled uh, the vampire lovers. Yes, yeah, so they were sort uh, of
1: sniffing around Of
2: course, at the time. They, would do, they that, that did good business for them, the vampire lovers. So they were looking for, um, look, look, looking for you know, more projects from them. But I think it, they, it strikes me that they were possibly victims of their own ambition here. I think, you know, Michael Carrera probably went along and said, guys, we've got these brilliant ideas. When the earth cracked open, Raquel Welsh in a fishbowl saving us from monsters, and we've got Zeppelin versus pterodactyls. And he's like, yeah, that's great, but how are we going to make these? You know, we haven't got a lot of money. You know, we're, we're AIP, but we're not super rich. We haven't got tons of cash. So, um, how, how are we going to actually do this? And I think that's what finally put paid to it when they actually sat down and looked at it and thought, well, these posters look magnificent, but we're never, ever going to be able to deliver on those, to be honest.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things, particularly with Zeppelins versus Pterodactyls, the am- anticipation from the audience. You're just yeah. never going to be able to, to match that. And, and, even a, even a big budget at that time as well.
2: You know, you were never going to be able to, to hit that anticipation level. Your best bet would have been that they got um, Ray Harryhausen back. Mm. Or, you know, or, or, you know maybe Jim Danforth or, you know, the guys we were talking about earlier. But if they could have got um, Harryhausen back, they might have stood a chance. But yeah. I think on a tiny hammer AIP budget, you know, we'd, we'd have had those kind of pterodactyls like, like the flying monsters you see in the film that, that Daryl mentioned um, of the Earth's core. You'd have had these very stiff winged gliding pterodactyls that would have looked absolutely awful. And I suspect that both films are much, much better in our imaginations than they ever would yeah. have been screams. Yeah,
0: I mean, when the Earth cracks open, you can probably tailor You can probably tailor a script to fit that. Oh, you know, fit it. But I just don't get how even even like now, if you're a, a low budget production company the title zeppelins versus pterodactyls have put the fear of god in most hundreds (laughs) oh yeah
2: it promises so much yeah yeah, i think you know i think 20th century fox if they're still around i think they've gone now but you know one of the big hollywood studios would look at that and go oh hang on a minute guys you know (laughs) that's going to cost us an arm and a leg you know but yeah maybe nowadays you could do it with cgi but back in 1970 when you had stop motion or you know giant full-size models which convinced no one Well, yeah, good luck, Hammer.
0: (laughs) Okay, that concludes the first part of Scenelit's exploration of the unmade Hammer films. Join us again for part two, where we learn about the potential plans for the Count, a trip to India, a scantily clad vampire torn from the comic book pages, and a starring role for Scotland's most famous monster, Nessie.